WAER Sports proudly presents the Ostrom Avenue Podcast. And Syracuse has knocked off NC State 24-9. The students rush the field. The Orange are bowl eligible in 6-0 for just the third time in the last 87 years. Syracuse stops out the Spiders. It took overtime to do so, but the Orange claim the first semifinal of the Empire Classic 74 to 71. Breaking down the orange every week. Syracuse's defense dropped by 20 spots on Ken Palm last night. So that was really embarrassing. I think Malik Brown should be getting more minutes. He shows the energy. I think he brought energy when he came to the floor. And talking with the industry's experts. We're joined by a very special guest and a friend of the podcast, Brent Axe. We now have the pleasure of being joined by David Thompson from the USA Today Network. We're joined by a very special guest. It's former SU men's lacrosse star and current ESPN analyst, Paul Carcaterra. It's the Ostrom Avenue podcast from WAER. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 24th, recording this around 9 a.m. Eastern time. My name is Ethan Frank, and as always, we're brought to you by Empire Hearing and Audiology on the pod. We thank them very much for their support of the show, joined by the two gentlemen that accompany me on almost every single episode of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. First, let's let's bring in Mr. Jordan Leonard. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing good, you know. Waking up at 9 a.m. I'm I'm used to sleeping in, but you know I'm getting used to it. That this this last week I've been waking up early, and now I'm feeling good. I'm feeling productive in these early mornings. Well, I have always been a a morning person. I've always been productive in the morning, so I'm glad you could join me on 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 the good side here. Uh, uh, we're also joined uh, after he missed out last week. Uh, he was feeling a bit under the weather, but uh, Quadir Copeland, <laughs> I think his shot on Saturday recovered him faster than expected from his uh yeah it resurrected him from his illness from his illness mr hudson ridley hudson how are you i I, i'm just a man reborn ethan i'm back i i went from the lowest of lows just one week ago to now you know what i i'm feeling good i i've done the reverse syracuse basketball where i went from bad to good and we'll talk about that yeah, we, we got a lot coming up on the show. We're going to talk about the win over Miami, the loss against Florida State last night. Jordan and I had the pleasure of speaking to Mike DeCourcy on Tuesday before the Florida State game, um, who, you know, as he'll say, works for a, a number of different outlets doing all different types of things, whether it be TV, writing, bracketology, all these different things. He's got some great stories to share about 30, 35 minutes with Mike. So, so hope you enjoy that. We'll also, you know, touch Syracuse football schedules coming out tonight, Wednesday night. Some games have already been released, including a trip to Las Vegas. What? Uh, I, I heard, you know, Jordan might be first on the list for, uh, for, for wanting to go to Las Vegas next year. Um, and then of course, Felicia will get Jack squad. I mean, just continue to roll 16 and two big game ranked game. First of three in a row, starting with Notre Dame on Thursday, but first let's, let's, let's go back to Adrian Autry's squad. We can start with Saturday against Miami. Um, first buzzer beater in the dome. Don't have to ignore the elephant in the room in seven years. Uh, Quadir Copeland sinks a three to, to down the Hurricanes game was tied at 69. Judamins, his 13th and final assist of the game, a cross court pass with one second left. And Co- I think the ball left Copeland's fingertips with like 0.3 or, or 0.4 on the clock. So a true buzzer beater. 
Uh, and I, I, I'm lucky enough to say that, you know, I was in the dome for the last buzzer beater, the John Gillen shot against Duke in 2017. And then the Copeland buzzer beater on Saturday against Miami, Jordan. I don't know if you're watching. I know you were definitely listening Hudson. I don't know what, what your status was of watching or, or listening, but what, what, what was that like? I was definitely listening before watching because I was producing the game inside the Ocean Avenue studios and your call was about a minute before the TV feed. So I did see, or I did hear the shot before I was able to go back and watch it. And I, it was insane. I mean, that it all of the things that kind of come together for a buzzer beater came together for, for Syracuse and Miami. They, the back and forth for like the last two minutes, Syracuse gets possession and calls timeout to, to not minutes. only set How about up the like drama. six, six yeah, minutes. It was like eight, it was the last like eight yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. the two minutes, the last two minutes were, were pretty sick too. Sorry. I didn't extend it to six, um, <laughs> but they, you know, you call the timeout, you build the drama, you build the tension. And then that play, it honestly, it just wasn't working at first. And then all out of nowhere, Quidier Copeland gets it on, on, on the left wing and, and nails it. It was it was a mix of emotions. You thought Syracuse wasn't going to get the shot. You're bound for overtime, and then all of a sudden, in a span of two seconds, Quadir was in the first row. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I before you jump in, Hudson, I think you, like I think you saying you know that was there the play looked like it was blown up. I don't think there was a play because Adrian Archer was talking about it after the game. I mean, this is a pure Jim Beheimism. Like th th there are things I, I feel like I say all the time that Autry has taken and, and he, he does differently. And there are some things that he does exactly the same. And this is one of those things where like at the end of a game, it's just give the ball to the best player and let him make a play. And and that is really what Autry said that the play in the huddle was besides his, his joke. He's like, that's exactly how we drew it up. It was Judah, get the ball to Quadir on the wing for three and, and have him hit the shot. But no, it's really just get the ball to your best player. Everyone else get out the way. Um, so it, it, I think that is, you know, I don't know if that's the play I would have drawn up, um, but I guess with the way Judah was passing the ball that it worked. You said that late in the game though. They did. That's the whole game. They do that every game, all game. But no, I, I do think uh, that moment was one of the most fun moments I've had at WAR. For those of you who don't know, a little inside baseball when you're on the lower rung of what we call desk, everybody watches the game together and we all had it on a TV and your call was, wasn't synced with the game, but it was maybe only 10 seconds ahead of what we could hear. So like it was basically bang, bang, we heard it. And then we saw it. And I texted, I texted you, Ethan, during the game. Like I, I never like text the play by play guy during the game, but it was so insane. Those last eight minutes, I just texted in all caps. You're cooking, man. Like he just did every play. It was bang, bang, bang. And everybody, everybody on he did drop. He did drop. It. He did legitimately drop a Mike Breen bang. That's, I mean, that's because uh, there was, there was, there, was, there were so many threes made. I had to find a way to, you know, <laughs> you, know you know, so when you're on play by play, you got to diversify your vocabulary. And, you know, my, something I say a lot is, you know, he got it in, in terms of making a shot. So I was like, I can't just keep saying he got it. Um, and, and, you know, it just happened. It, it just slipped out. I, I had like, I like the, the first part of the word, I felt myself starting to say it. And then I felt like a little hesitation, like, oh, do I really want to say this right now? Like you have that quarter second <laughs> pause and, but then it just, boom. Um, yeah. cause it was JJ. He just, he just kept nailing those yeah. threes. Um, I will say, yes. Uh, it was one of the more surreal experiences of my entire life. Um, completely blacked out after the three pointer went in really, you know, when the ball's in the air to like 
signing off the broadcast just completely have no memory of it um and then i was just <laughs> legitimately in a state of shock for about two two and a half hours after the game i mean jordan you picked us up from the dome and that was what an hour after the game ended and i don't even know if i said a word in the car like i was I, like i legitimately <laughs> this man like, was, was just in shock this man was straight faced when he got in the car after <laughs> after having one of the craziest like final 10 minutes you could ever have on play by play straight faced in the car. I will add though, Hudson, our, at least my desk moment, I don't know if Ethan was that there at that time was uh, the Aranda Gadsden catch in the end zone oh, against Purdue. Yeah. That was, no, I that was, was the, I was, I was actually in the dome reporting for a, a different outlet oh, that lucky day for you. It was, uh, I, I will say that was not a very professional press box when, uh, when that touchdown <laughs> was scored. And I can't imagine press row at the dome was very professional after the quadrant Copeland shot went in. Um, because you know, if you don't know, you are not supposed to cheer or do anything in, in, in the press box or, or on press row. Uh, you're supposed to be an unbiased journalist. Um, and I did hear reports that maybe there were some unprofessional things going on on press row when, when quadrant Copeland's <laughs> shot went in. Um, but I said it last week on the pod that I was so excited for a noon Saturday game because you knew it was going to be an awesome crowd. It was a good matchup for Syracuse in terms of size. Did Matthew Cleveland pose some, some problems as a six, seven athletic wing who could get up and down the floor? Yes. Did Nigel pack shooting post some problems? Yes. You get lucky that, that Norchad O'Meara gets injured in practice between Miami's most recent game and, and playing Syracuse. So you don't have to deal with him, but I, I don't know how much the hurricanes, you know, felt the effects of that. They were still able to score. Uh, they, they shot the ball well in the second half. They were still able to, to do their normal things. It was more about Syracuse making, making shots than anything. Chris Bell and, and JJ Starling combined for 10 made threes. And then you parlay that into last night against Florida state and Syracuse as a team makes one three pointer. Yeah, this is, I mean, Miami and and Florida State one's the ceiling, one's the floor of of what Syracuse can can really do. I mean, when they're making their threes, you mentioned JJ and Chris combining for ten. They shot thirty seven and a half percent from downtown. When they're making three pointers at a above thirty five percent clip, they have a chance to win a lot of these games because that means they're scoring the basketball more. They're not just relying on getting to the rim and relying on two-pointers consistently throughout the game. When you don't hit your threes like Florida State, that means you have to hit almost all of your two-pointers because when you can't get that extra point and the other team can, you're going to start falling behind. You have to make sure that you're hitting on an even better clip inside the arc. And honestly, you look at Judah Mintz, this is his stat line is basically determined how people make shots. When, when the other players make shots, 13 assists. When they don't, I don't even I don't even know what he had last night. I think it was two assists. Yeah, it was not if, very if many. That, it was it was it under was, I can it was definitely under five. It was three. Yeah. yeah. It was three. So that just three. shows you like the difference in this team when they're making shots and when they're not. Their point guard can have 13 assists, still score and they win and they're making threes. And then the opposite when they're making one three, the point guard, you know, he scored 28 points because he's Judah, but three assists is not gonna help you win the game in the end. Yeah, I I mean you did say, though, the ceiling being Miami. I, I don't think we should, you know, put on fully rose-colored glasses just because the game was crazy. It wasn't a very good I think, shooting I think, performance. Uh, I, I, For making three, doubles, it was good. Yeah, I think I think that is the ceiling of, of three-point shooting. See, yes, exactly. That's the perfect way to put it. It's the ceiling of three-point shooting. Two the team as a whole still struggled. It was, they shot under 40% uh, from the field, and then they shot 66% from the line. I mean, like, 
it, got even worse uh, from the line against Florida State. Yeah, it, it oh way worse against Florida State. Well, I, Florida it was actually State the same. The it was the same. It was the same percentage against Florida State. It was just more misses. They just missed 11, misses. 11 free throws last night. That's the highest total they've missed all season. That eleven. Now it's, I, I believe, not. It was the worst three point shooting percentage. It wasn't the worst field goal shooting percentage, but that is the floor. The ceiling. We don't really know where this team's ceiling is because of the same inconsistencies that we see from from the Miami game to the Florida State game, where they have the best three-point shooting game of the year, then they have the worst three-point shooting game of the year. Or when they go to UNC and they have their biggest margin of defeat in forever, and then they go to Pitt on the road when they're six-and-a-half-point underdogs, and they handle Pitt comfortably. We don't really know where the ceiling is right now, and no questions have been answered. Only more questions have been raised as the season goes on of, okay, this team picks up a little steam. They have a nice win over Miami, a nice win over Pitt. Maybe things can get back on track here. And good, a good Florida State team who's hot right now is a good test. Well, clearly it wasn't that much of a equal test for Syracuse because they just they couldn't buy a bucket, they couldn't hit shots. And it's just, it's tough to see when when a team has all this momentum and just coming crashing down in a way like this too because when yeah. Syracuse loses they they lose they lose bad i don't think there's been a loss that hasn't been by 15 or more points this season um, yeah i believe so, brent axe tweeted out that the average um loss was 21 points yeah that's not good um yeah. <laughs> so i i was i was really interested about how last night's game would go i was talking to a lot of people pregame and I was like, so they beat Pittsburgh, they beat Miami, then you have Florida State, NC State, and BC on the road, NC State at home. It's like, if you look at all those games individually, it's like, oh yeah, they they should win all of these games. Like, at, at Pitt on the road, Pitt is clearly you know, not that good, and Syracuse has Pitt's number, having beat them twice this year. Okay, they win that game. Then you beat Miami, and if you look at them individually, it's like, oh yeah, they should they should win all these games. But then, like you think about it, over a five game stretch, you're like, they're not. This team is not winning five games in a row. Um, and and that's kind of against against all against ACC teams. You know, maybe they could win five or six non conference games in a row, depending on who they're playing. But they're not winning five ACC games in a row. It was just about. I don't know where this loss is going to come. Um, and it happened to come last night. And, you know, Autry talked about it after the game. They they ran out of energy in the second half. Um, and the defense just just stopped defending. And guys stopped staying in front of guys. Whenever they went to zone, it was bad. Like, really bad. Um, I think it was Jameer Watkins uh, is the guy on Florida State. He, he was terrific in this game, scoring from everywhere, rebounding. I don't even think he played 30 minutes and he had 27 points. So that, that that's a pretty big indictment of Syracuse's defense. And you know, Florida State's going to play a lot of guys. Leonard Hamilton plays 10 or 11 guys every single game. So, you know, it, it was about when is the loss in this, this five-game streak of winnable games going to come. And this is the first bad loss of the season. Syracuse woke up yesterday and it was 68th in the net. Um, not having a loss worse than quad one. And today it wakes up 82nd with a quad three loss. And that's not good because as we're going to talk about with Mike in a little bit, this is a team that can't really afford losses like that. Yeah, it's. I will say uh, for Syracuse's benefit, at least looking on the optimist side, Florida State has been on the rise. I think they're now five and two in conference play and still could 
um, improve from there. They're really struggling because they had a horrible, horrible non-conference um, record. But th- if this was a game that you lose, then you if you beat, like, say you beat NC State and then BC on the road, then maybe you're thinking a little bit differently. You put yourself back into where you can get some quality wins. But again, it's it's the fact that they're not even close when they lose these games. Like, I feel like the perspective on this team, if – the North Carolina loss was by 15. If the Duke loss was by 10, if the Virginia loss was by 15, if maybe 10, if this loss was like by five, like the perspective is totally different. But when you get blown out in every single game that you lose, I feel like it's just so hard to like, this is a solid improving like NCAA potential team. Because when you lose or when you're not playing well, it shows that you can't even stay in the games, especially late. Yeah, they just give up. They wave the white flag. It really is the ultimate things aren't going my way. Like last night, they ran out of energy, sure, but it was also a lack of like, okay, well, my shots aren't going in, and that's demoralizing. But at a certain point here, as soon as Florida State gets up by even six points, all right, waving the white flag. We're not making a six-point comeback shooting this way. We'll just let them run all over us. I mean, that's that's really how it is. North Carolina... I mean, that game, the margin of victory for North Carolina. 36. Yeah, 36 points. That could have been avoided. I think North Carolina is a fantastic offense. They're one of the best teams in the country, and they're going to go very far in the tournament, at least in my opinion. But it's not enough to beat Syracuse by 36 when Syracuse plays to the final whistle. They haven't, in their losses, they haven't really played – fully till the final whistle if you remember the first loss of the season with Tennessee they were in the game for most of the way Tennessee goes on a little run and then boom they just give up they throw their hands up and they say okay this is a loss Gonzaga they they didn't immediately when they got run out of the gym they didn't show the heart to try to come back Duke at the half after the half as soon as Duke started to go on a little bit of run to open up the half Boom, hands up, wave the white flag. That's what it's been, game after game for these losses, and that's why they end up being so bad on the statute. If they play to the final whistle, these losses all of a sudden become not as demoralizing. They're going to be demoralizing. Losing to a quad three team, which will be improved in their ranking at home when you're on a momentum streak is demoralizing. But if you fight till the final buzzer and you really did give it your all, you got to think that would help mentally in some way. So we'll see if Florida state moves up to a quad two. And yeah, Miami's really the only close game uh, this season. I, I, if, unless I'm corrected, I hope so. if someone has the schedule up, I believe it's the only game decided by one possession this season that Syracuse has uh, played. Is that correct? Well, Colgate quick was math, give or math, take one math. possession to be fair. Colgate four. So theoretically, Theoretically, technically, one possession. I guess. guess. Yeah, Colgate and Cornell were kind of down the stretch. But I guess, I I don't know. I don't really think of Colgate as like a back and forth game because it was just all Syracuse down the stretch. So Mm -hmm. Miami was back and forth. Yeah, one time back and one time forth. Right. It's like (laughs) Miami was the only game. A press. Miami was the only game where they're going back and forth. And you would think that would be a, you know, a really good learning experience for this team that is still really young, starting five sophomores, like a very young team and coming off the bench tonight, you had a sophomore, a junior and 
I don't even know what class Kyle Cuff is because, I mean, I guess academically he's a junior, but like he's basically a, a freshman or a sophomore. Or I, I he's don't a even student know. athlete. Yeah, I, I, I know he's yeah. a student athlete. He's um, a student athlete. But he hasn't played a lot of basketball before this year is the point. So a tough loss. You're hoping Florida State moves up to quad two and, and the Seminoles keep winning now, but you just got to lock in because – you got a game against NC State on Saturday. Now I would categorize that as a must win. Boston College on Tuesday, another must win. And, and you know, what won't be easy. Um, I would, Teams haven't gotten tripped up in, in Boston, but like it's not like that's going to be an easy game. You got to take care of business. And then you get a really good, probably quad one opportunity against Wake Forest next Saturday. And no, do you have to win it? No, but there aren't many quad one opportunities on this schedule left. So you, you got to start to take advantage of, of the opportunities you have. Uh, any final thoughts uh, on, on, on this team before we move on? No, just that Syracuse is on its last leg in terms of, you know, having the potential to get to the NCAA tournament. They got to start winning one, the games that they should win, which, you know, I guess are a lot of the games down the stretch in terms of the quads, but also getting those key victories, like you said, on the road against Wake Forest. I just want to see some heart. That's all I want. When the game, when the game is even when, when things aren't winnable, going, when things aren't going their way, when things are going their way, when things are going their way, they they've got incredible heart. I I want, I want, the men's team to take a page out of the women's team book, and understand when you're down, you gotta have heart, and there is a way to come back. And you know that that's that's all I want. So, Syracuse, NC State. Saturday, seven o'clock Saturday night. Uh, can't say many people are a fan of a Saturday night, seven o'clock tip, um, but still should be fun in, in inside the dome. All right, let's toss it over to our interview with Mike DeCourcy, Fox Sports, the Sporting News, all these different places, Big Ten Network. Uh, you can find him throughout the college basketball season. A great mind, a, a great guy, and, and a pleasure to have him on the show. Hope you enjoy. We now have the esteemed pleasure of being joined by Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News and Fox Sports, where he does a lot of bracketology for them, recording this Tuesday afternoon before Syracuse takes on Florida State tonight. Mike, how are you? I'm doing very well, gentlemen. How are you? Doing good. It's a it's great to have you on the show here. So, you know, just starting things super broadly off the top, you know, when did you really fall in love with, with college basketball and, and covering the game? Well, it's interesting uh, that 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 would question would come up this week because a week ago, I wrote a piece about the 50th anniversary of Notre Dame ending UCLA's 88 game winning streak. Uh, it was a, a dramatic shot by a, a young man from Pittsburgh named Dwight Clay, a 20 footer. It wasn't a buzzer beater. Uh, UCLA still had multiple shots at the goal, and that was ultra dramatic because they literally had three point black shots and missed them all. Uh, and I wrote about that and that I, I was a huge sports nut when I was a, a kid. Um, it was really something that uh, I was never a great athlete, but I loved to play. And, but I was always really into, into uh, following sports and, and it became uh, it became apparent to me when I was very young, I think fourth grade, that that was something that I wanted to do for a living. I remember having a conversation with my dad about coaching and my dad said, well, you know, most of the coaches 
Glade. And I'm like, okay, so I'll do the other. And that was when it became clear to me. And then I, I loved all the sports, but I fell in love with basketball probably because of my brother who, uh, who, who was blessed with the height and the athleticism that I was not. Uh, he grew to six, six foot. Uh, I only, I stopped at five, eight and, uh, he played in high school and then in, uh, NAI at La Roche university. And so following him and his games from the time he was in fifth grade, all the way up through uh, his college days really was what cemented my interest in basketball above all. Something that, that you do that's unique to basketball is the bracketology aspect of it. So kind of, how did you get into that and, and, why is it still appealing to you kind of every season looking at who's going to make that NCAA tournament? Well, I was asked, uh, I, I, I've been working for the Big Ten Network for uh, since 2010, the 2010 season. So this is my 15th season with BTN. And Fox Sports owns a, I believe now, the slight majority of the company of, of BTN. So there was kind of a affinity there. Uh, and I had done a piece about, uh, before I worked for Fox, uh, about some things they did with their coverage and, and through that, uh, got to know the, uh, executive producer of Fox college sports, Jordy Wimmer. And, and he, so he came to me in the summer of 2019 and asked if I'd be interested in doing the brackets for them. And I was all, I was all in favor of it. Uh, I, 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 have really enjoyed my relationship with Fox. Um, it, it's, it, it, I, I, I have worked, I've now worked with BTN and Fox uh, for a combined 20 years, 15 at one, five at the other. And everybody that I've worked with has been wonderful. I mean, never somebody that you work with and say, boy, man, that person, you know, not once. They're all, they've all been tremendous, great teammates, great bosses. And, so I, I've been really happy to get the chance to do that. Uh, as for uh, the um, the actual uh, process itself, I did back in, I think it was 2006 or seven, when the NCAA first introduced the mock bracket concept. Uh, they brought uh, 20 journalists into Indianapolis and I was one of the ones invited and showed us how it actually works, what the process is, what, what the computer programming is and all of that, what's emphasized. And I did that that year. And I always, I, I think I wrote in the piece that I, that I did for Sporting News that it was like being handed the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, it's like this, like the whole, like this is how it's done. And it was so fascinating. Uh, and then I went back to that for various reasons, three more times on top of that. So I was pretty uh, in tune with what, uh, the committee does. I felt that uh, when they when they offered me the opportunity that I could that I because I had the background in that that I could give a pretty good uh, uh, approximation of what the committee is is trying to accomplish. Uh, and then I and then I have the on air experience now at uh, from BTN that when I appear on on uh, Fox, I'm I'm comfortable with doing you know explaining my thoughts and and procedures. So now that we're into you know towards the end of January, football is. You know, there's there's less and less NFL football. College obviously has been over for a couple of weeks now. What, what 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 is this time like for someone that's been that's been writing and working in college basketball for so long? What is the the rush of January, February, and then then into March like? Well, I, even I love conference play. First of all, I think it's fascinating. I think it's the most underrated aspect of of 
men's college basketball. It's it's something that I really have from the time I was a beat writer covering Duquesne, Pitt, Memphis, Cincinnati, uh, until now where I cover the country. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed conference play. I don't enjoy the the idea that, okay, football's over, so now the world's going to start paying attention to college hoops. I'm like, there's like, there's a, there are only football games on the weekends. Like, what are you doing on Wednesday? You know, are you breaking down game film to get ready for your, no, oh, come on. I mean, watch the, watch Kentucky on Tuesday and then watch the Ravens on Saturday. I mean, it's not that hard. I've never understood that concept, but I, I do think that it is, you know, if it does open the doors for more fans, I've always been like, if you want to come in in November, we're there for you. If you want to come in after college football is over, do it. If you want to come in whenever it, and if, if you want to just come in for March, that's cool too. Who the, the door is open and it's always better with more people inside. As, as Ethan just mentioned, getting towards the end of January, looking at, you know, this season specifically, what have been your, your main takeaways from the teams, you know, in the top 25 that are in contention to make the brackets and just the college basketball season kind of as a whole so far? I don't want to be a downer, but it's not a great year. This is not a vintage college basketball season. Uh, I watched Cincinnati and Kansas play last night. I watched Cincinnati miss in the first dozen minutes of the second half in a game that was relatively close, seven point blank shots, layups or jump hooks at the rim with very little contest and, and stay in the game. Like for, like they were right there, like down five, even though they did that, so that it was not great. That's gone on maybe a little bit too much this season. The competition, the suspense when we get to the end is still great. And there are still great games. The the Seton Hall-Creighton game played over the weekend would be a, a terrific example of that. Uh, both teams scored over 90, I believe. I know it took three overtimes to get there. But uh, still, uh, what Kentucky's doing offensively is a beautiful thing. And what they're doing defensively is allowing other teams to play beautifully as well. So those are fun. Uh, it's it, But if you look at the mock drafts, and they're not – ironclad or uh, gospel or whatever, but they give you an idea uh, of what kind of talent there is in division one basketball this year. The mock drafts, it's like four of the first five players are either international or G league. That just shouldn't, you know, that, that shouldn't be, but that's, I guess you're going to get some down classes from time to time. And I think that's where we are. We do have, however, the flip side of this, we do have an all time great college player in our midst. Uh, Zach Eady is absolutely one of the college greats. He's as long as he remains healthy and let's cross our fingers. That's true. Uh, he will become one of the rare multi-time winners of the player of the year award. I, I, you can choose which one you want the Oscar Robertson trophy. I like the Oscar Robertson trophy because it goes back pretty far. Ours at sporting news goes back pretty far as well, but I like the Robertson one that the U S basketball writers give for this conversation because it goes all the way back to 59. Um, and it, it, so it's longer than Wooden, longer than Naismith. And if you go back, I believe it's Oscar himself, uh, Jerry Lucas, Kareem, Bill Walton, uh, Ralph Sampson, and that might be the whole list. No, and, and Pete Maravich. And so we're talking about the absolute, the greatest that have ever played this the college basketball. 
that have done what he's likely to do. And so I think we have to appreciate that. And, and I, you know, one of the things that bothers me about the way he's viewed, he's seven foot four, 290 or so, something like that. People think it's, well, he's seven, four. Well, like there are guys in college basketball who are taller than him and aren't like stick figures or, uh, or awkward or whatever. I mean, like if they put into it, what Zach did, um, they might have been either close to Zach or at Zach's level, but they did it. Uh, he did. And I'm not blaming him. You know, you can love basketball or not, but Zach has put a ton into becoming what he is as a player. Uh, they now, the mock drafts are now suggesting that he will be a top half of the first round draft choice, which is in direct contradiction to what everybody thought when the season began. Uh, so I give him a ton of credit for what he's been able to do with his game and what he's what he shares with us each time Purdue takes the floor. Funny you mentioned that there are other players that are 7'4", because Syracuse Naheem McLeod is 7'4", and he's definitely not producing to the extent that Zach Eady is. But obviously Naheem McLeod, a transfer. Um, Zach Eady, someone who stayed with the Purdue program a long time. Do you think that the transfer portal and how prevalent it is in college basketball right now is kind of making the early season in college basketball a little bit harder, a little bit harder to watch in, in a sense, because these teams with a lot of transfers have to get used to each other in the early parts of the season? You know, honestly, Jordan, I think that's I think that's become kind of an excuse uh, because colleges or college basketball teams are never the same from year to year. You could return your seven player rotation and not be the same because this guy got a girlfriend and that person is thinking about business school and not not college hoops. Uh, or maybe this person's thinking about where he's going to land in the draft. Uh, and so he's thinking he's more shots. I mean, all kinds of stuff changes from year to year. So your job is always to go into the next season with what you have, go through preseason practice, and you get more preseason practice now than you ever did. They didn't let they didn't used to let you have five guys on the floor at the same time. Uh, even twenty years ago, uh, you couldn't have five guys in the gym. You could only have two at a time. They didn't want you to look like a team. Now it's ah, uh, go ahead. Uh, just don't overdo it. And, and most coaches don't want to overdo it because they want their players to be sharp when they get to the year. So I think that the, the idea that the preseason is different, uh, I, I think it's overblown. Uh, it, teams relied on freshmen before, maybe more. Now they rely on transfers more. Uh, it's, it's still new players that have to be adjusting to the, to the new coach. And we see coaches change jobs. And therefore, they have to be introduced to a whole new group of players and uh, and and introduce their systems and all of that. That's been going on for, you know, the coaching carousel has consumed basically one fifth or so of the coaches on average from year to year. So they've been dealing with that forever. So I don't really buy the idea that uh, that you know you can't pay all that much attention in November because everybody's new. Well, it's always been that way. Speaking of conferences uh, and, and early season, feels like the Big Ten and the Big 12 have, have kind of separated themselves this year. I think it was, what, eight Big 12 teams in the top 25 last week and then and then still seven this week, despite, you know, all these teams playing each other, beating each other, moving up and down the rankings. I know how familiar you are with, with the Big Ten, but but when it comes to those two leagues, are they clear cut above the rest right now when, when you look at the whole landscape of the country? 
I think the Big 12 is probably here at a, at a clear number one. I think the Big 10 is number two, but it's it's there's a bit of distance in between there, and it's closer to number three, which would be the SEC. Uh, the SEC probably has uh, the the teams has more teams uh, that that are significant. They probably go a little bit deeper with those, and then the Big Ten probably goes a little bit deeper with teams that are quality. Uh, when you get down to eight or nine or ten uh, in their league, it's probably a little bit tougher test than it might be uh, in the SEC. I'm not sure I'd have the numbers exactly right, but somewhere down when you get when you start getting toward the double digits probably a tougher ride in the Big Ten than it is in the SEC, uh, but they're both pretty close to one another. I, I, I think that people get upset by the fact that November and December uh, define what you are as a conference, but that's the reality is that's the only way to do it. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't be if teams like integrated more non-conference games in January and February, but what you do out of conference still defines what your conference is. What I always try to use as an example, as a metaphor, is it's like your non-conference performance establishes the value of your currency. It's like in, in a currency market. So a dollar's worth this and a euro is worth that, et cetera. Well, a Big Ten win becomes worth such and such because they of what they do in, in the non-conference games. And the same with Big 12 and everybody else. And if you don't win those games, then your currency isn't as value. And that's, you know, that's something that I know ACC fans complain about. I know ACC coaches complained about a year ago. Uh, uh, Jeff Capel talked about that uh, when Pitt was sort of on the bubble, even though they were playing very well in the league and almost had a chance to win the, and had a chance to win the ACC regular regular season when they went down to Miami. Uh, I, I think it it goes to, you know, if you've got a Notre Dame playing not very well and you've got a Georgia Tech not playing very well and you've got a Louisville play, not playing very well, if you beat those teams in conference, it doesn't mean as much. It, it's just reality. Yeah, you talk about the uh, the appearance of the ACC. Only four teams in your latest bracketology, two in the top 25. Syracuse, one of those teams that's trying to uh, to rise as the conference kind of season goes along. They haven't had that bad loss, but they haven't had really a defining good win. How much does that conference, you know, being in the ACC and the rest of their schedule, does it give them a realistic shot to getting to the tournament? Well, I think it exists. But the problem is that their opportunities are so specific. Uh, you you have to win the games against Florida State and NC State and Boston College. They're not going to do a lot for you. They will help beef up your record so that if you win those games and others out there lose, then you might be the ben the beneficiary of that. Of of you're still standing while the the old joke about uh, you used to see in cartoons where you know do we have any volunteers and then one person would move and the other line would all step back, kind of like that. That. Those games help you do that. But the games that can really help them, Wake, Clemson, to, uh, certainly uh, Carolina, uh, and then uh, Clemson on the road. I mean, the rest of it doesn't do a ton for you. So it's the opportunities are very limited. Maybe at NC State does something, but the, the Wolfpack haven't done enough uh, to be uh, relevant themselves. They had an opportunity, a window probably a week ago, two weeks ago, and it and didn't go through when, when they had uh, the heels on their home floor. Uh, they got smoked. Uh, 
so th they they didn't get that done. So the opportunities for Syracuse to establish them, th themselves as a worthy NCAA tournament team are limited. They that puts the pressure on them to then excel at a really high level so that uh, their metrics are better, their record is attractive, and they become a choice between, okay, this team doesn't have a lot of great wins, but they didn't lose often, or this team has a few good wins, but they got a lot of L's, and at least you're in the picture then. Yeah, speaking of, speaking of Carolina, I mean, I got the chance to see them a week and a half ago, you know, in person. That is a team that even with the ACC as the state of it is, I, I think it's pretty clear that North Carolina is one of the best teams in the country. Uh, the, the way they defend, the way they shoot the ball, um, definitely a team you you would say could be in the race for a national title. I think the argument with the ACC the past two years or, or three years, however long you want to go back, you know, maybe even back to 2019 when they had obviously three number one seeds and Virginia wins the title is, you know, regular seasons have been down, but in 2022, Duke and North Carolina both make the final four. Four. Um, Carolina goes to the championship game last year. Miami makes the final four. The big 10 doesn't have a team that, that gets to the final four. And I think that is, you know, the ACC coaches argument that right. you were, you were talking about earlier. Is that, you know, when you say, you know, you're playing non-conference kind of defines who you are in conference, but then that notion is, is maybe disproved because of one game in March. What, what, what do you say to that argument? Well, I think, first of all, I don't think that one game disproves, uh, but I, 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 you know, my theory about this, and this has come up with the ACC um, in 2017, if you've got eight or more teams that are going to the tournament, your league is probably not going to perform well in March. Now, in 17, the, the Tar Heels did win the championship, but everybody else kind of checked out early. Not, maybe not literally everybody else, but the majority of them. And that's been true since we first had that kind of truckload of teams in 2011 when the Big East got 11 teams into the field. It was a record-breaking number. And they they wound up again with a champion, but everybody else was gone. Like, they lost nine of the 11 teams in the first weekend. And the two that advanced played other Big East teams, so somebody was going Right, forward. Syracuse lost to Marquette that year exactly. in the round of 32. Exactly, I was at that game, Yes. Uh, I, I could, I could, I got a good story for you about that game. So my, uh, I, I grew up a Syracuse fan. My dad went to Syracuse. So that is the first game I really have a memory of because I, I believe it, it was, it was on the West. It was, it was either a late game or it was on the West coast. I don't remember. No, it was definitely game. not on the West coast. The game was in Cleveland. Okay. The game, I think it was later though. I but was, it probably was yes. Late, so late, it, late, it was a later game, game, three seed versus 11 seed. Um, and I was, so I, what I was nine. And my dad didn't let me to stay up to watch the game. And I had a, I had a t-shirt, I had a Syracuse shirt. And he said, when you wake up in the morning, if the t-shirt is flipped up, that means Syracuse won. If it's flipped down, Syracuse lost. And I woke up in the morning and it was flipped over. It was one of the most distraughts I've ever been. <laughs> and that's really my first Syracuse game memory, even though I didn't get to watch the game. Oh, that's a great story. You know, when, when, when I, when I talk to parents uh, who uh, say like, my kid can't stay up till 11 o'clock to watch the world series or whatever. I'm like priorities, you know, what's the priority? It, it, you get one Syracuse game, you know, come on. I mean, I, I, I'm not a dad, so I'm allowed to, to, you know, the kibitz from the, uh, from the seat, from the, uh, the, the, the uh, stands or whatever. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, that the reality is that 
those teams that go through those conferences that are that much of a grind, and we saw this with the Big 12 a year ago. They got one team to the Elite Eight. Uh, they they had 10 teams that could have made the tournament last year. They got seven of them, I believe. Uh, maybe eight. I'm forgetting now. Uh, but it, I, they but they they were all gone except for K-State. Uh, they made Kansas State to... Uh, made it to the Elite Eight. Everybody else went home. Uh, it's been like that year after year, and it's certainly been that with the Big Ten for the last three years. Uh, they are. It's not unique to the Big Ten. I think it's deep conferences, grind-down teams. I think they force a team to, to basically become the best version of itself at, night after night and to become less flexible because they have to endure they, they have to be ready every night nearly. They don't get those nights where, you know, we don't really have to play that hard. If, if we just, you know, we're at home against a bad team in our league. If we just kind of give a C-plus effort, the crowd will do the rest and and we'll get out of here with a W, we'll be fine. I, I've covered enough of those games in my time covering Pitt, or especially Cincinnati. Cincinnati used to do that all the time, drive Bob Huggins crazy with that. But they, it's just the nature of being a college athlete. It's hard to be great 40 times a year. Yeah, definitely. I think that's something that the zone did a lot of times, you know, back when Jim Bayon was the coaches. It made you, you you think on your toes pretty much every game, no matter if you faced it before or not. And obviously something different about Syracuse this season, no Jim Beheim, first year under coach Adrian Autry. What is the Nationals' perspective of Syracuse kind of so far this year in the first year um, with Autry as the head coach? I think it's been, it, you, you obviously you would like to have seen them have great success in November, December and be in that bracket picture and all that. But I think it's been kind of positive. I think he's I think the, the team has developed nicely. I think Judah Mintz's progress has been impressive. Uh, I, I'm, I'll maybe admit to some bias. I really like Red. I mean, I've known him since he was a player. Uh, no, I've known him really well since he became an assistant. Uh, I, I, he, when he and Hop, uh, Mike Hopkins, were together, uh, you, you know, we talked. We, we, I dealt with both of them a lot. Uh, so I, I, I love them as a college backcourt. I love them as an assistant tandem under under coach Beheim. Uh and so I really want him to succeed. Um I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna uh do there's no way I can impact that and I'm not gonna change my bracket and put Syracuse in there because I want Red to succeed, but it would be really cool to see. He's a good guy. Uh he, you know he's a Syracuse lifer, one of their all-time terrific players. And certainly one of their all-time terrific guys. So I'd love to see him do well. And I think the the, the start has been uh, very positive. Remember, it, it's a different approach than what Jim was doing. So all the players have to adjust a little bit. Uh, I think that's been pretty smooth uh, for the most part. And I I do believe that it'll he'll succeed. But that all comes down to uh, continuing to recruit well. Uh, and, and that, you know, that, and also it recruiting well now is different because you have to bring in players who are going, who are going to be able to come out of high school and help you, but you also have to be alert to what's out there in the transfer market and who can make you a better team. And, and so it's, it's a lot different than when he started, when he was recruited himself or when he got into the business as an assistant coach, it's, it's a different deal. So, you know, we were talking about the remaining schedule earlier. Not really a whole lot of chances uh, to get that that signature win. You get Clemson twice, uh, once at home, once on the road. You get Carolina again at home. 
maybe at Wake, maybe at NC State, but like that's that's kind of pushing it. Do you think it's realistic that this team could get to the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2021? I think it's possible. Uh, but like I said, they will have to excel. They're 13 and five now, four and three in the league. What is four and three? What, how many games do they play in the league? 20. They're 20. At 20. So four and three extrapolates to like, oh, that's four. That's one game over 100, 500, over three more times. So that's not going to do it. Like it has, they have to put a lot of space between themselves and 500 in the league. Now, league records don't matter, but that's the level of achievement that they have to reach within the ACC to get the attention of the committee. They're, they, I think that, They've got 13 more games. I think they're probably going to have to go nine and four, 10 and three to get themselves into that company. Uh, otherwise, it, it, unless they got the absolute right eight, and that would mean, you know, sweeping Clemson or beating Carolina, or, uh, winning on the road at Wake. And, uh, and you know, they don't want to add any more bad losses to their, to their thing. And, uh, and, you know, there are some there's some bad losses out there to be had uh, at Louisville would not be a good loss for a team aspiring to make a tournament home against Louisville would be a disaster. Uh, Boston College on the road is Boston College has given people trouble. They just can't quite finish. Uh, so though it, it, it's going to be hard because of what the parameters are based on what their opportunities are and what they did with the opportunities they had Tennessee, Gonzaga. Uh, starting off the league year against Virginia. Right now, the only victory that they have over a major team that is in the NCAA tournament picture is the one over Oregon and then maybe the one over Miami. But Miami keeps working really hard to get itself out of the mix. So that's all they've got. It's it's That's not going to be enough. So they're going to have to come close they're, they're gonna I, I don't want to say dominate that's dominates a strong word Carolina is going to dominate but they need to be excellent to be in the picture when we get to uh selection Sunday yeah it, it, it's unfortunate the Virginia game fell where it did just caught the Cavaliers at, at the absolute wrong time when that was a team that was pushing top 25 and now is a team not even really in the picture for the field at this point. I got one more thing for you, Mike. So I was reading your Carmelo Anthony uh, column from May uh, earlier today. I, I just, I, I thought it was, it was really interesting just how, you know, looking back 20 years later from, from when Syracuse won the national title, I guess, you know, what are your Carmelo 2003 Syracuse memories and, and what was the inspiration for, for that column? Well, I, I met Carmelo at the uh, ABCD camp. Uh, so it used to be at uh, Fairleigh Dickinson. It was the big event, uh, one of the big events in the on the July circuit. And he had a great game against Lenny Cook, who was a really big name prospect. And he just he and and LeBron. I mean, excuse me. Um, Carmelo was 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 very respected, uh, highly respected. But he didn't have that rep, not to that level, not top five uh, at that stage. And he just took apart Lenny Cook that day. And so I I talked to him after the game, uh, just me and him, and he was great. I he was he it was a great interview for a post-game in a camp setting. He was fantastic. And he and he could only spend one day there because he was he had to go to Oak Hill to get started at Oak Hill uh the next day. So he was one day in the camp and then had to take off. 
And I got to do that then. And then um, I went to a, a, a tournament down in, uh, uh, no, uh, what's the, Trenton, New Jersey. That's where it was. Trenton, New Jersey. I knew it was in New Jersey. Myself and Dave Tellup, who's now a high up executive with the San Antonio Spurs. He was then doing recruiting for rivals or scout or what I think it was rivals at the time. Uh, and we drove down from New York to see this, uh, this series of games. I don't remember exactly how many there were, but, um, we went to the first game. I didn't even remember who played in it, but then Carmelo was coming up in the, no, I, coming up in the second game. And we, we did that game. And then after the game, I went up to Carmelo, uh, and, and wanted to talk to him. And he said, Oh, hello, Mr. DeCourcy. And I'm like, no, man, nobody human does that. Like he met me one time, he's 18 years old. And he remembered me like before I even said my name, like that, that told me he was special right from then. And then I covered his first game at the garden. Uh, I think it was against Memphis maybe. Uh, and, and he went, and, and I remember what I wrote. I wrote, he could be all big East at every position on the floor. That's what I wrote after that game. He was phenomenal. He's, he, could, he could play point guard. He'd play power forward. If you had to put him in the post, he'd do that, and he'd beat everybody. He was just that good. And then I was really proud that at a time when there was a real bias uh, within coaching and, in, and, it, and within the media against uh, freshman winning awards, um, we, had, we were the only organization of the, of the prom, primary consensus NCAA selectors to name him first team All-American. I was really proud of that the day we did it. And I was much prouder three weeks later when Syracuse won the championship. He was always special as a, as a college player. It was only a year, but he was extraordinary from beginning to end. Uh, and I, I've not seen him a ton, but uh, when he was doing USA, USA basketball, what would have been five to, to eight years later, depending on which year it was, he was always very pleasant and still remembered who I was. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not easily flattered. It's not that. It's not about me. It was more about that he could remember me when we had only met one time and I was just some random guy uh, that, you know, that was writing about him. You talk to, if you're an athlete, you talk to dozens of, of, of reporters. How do you remember who any of them are? But he did. And I'll, I'll, that'll always stick out to me about what, why, why Carmelo is a special person and player. That's an amazing story. Uh, no surprise, I'm sure, to any Syracuse fan hearing that uh, rave reviews about Carmelo will uh, will get anyone happy and put a smile on anyone's face. On anyone's face, Mike, can't thank you enough for taking some time with us this afternoon. I I know you're doing a whole lot, so you know if you want to go ahead, where can we watch you on TV? Where can we read your stuff? Where can we find you on social media? All all that jazz. A lot of places. Um, uh, on Twitter, I'm at TSN Mike. I am on uh, every weekend uh, at Big Ten Network, Saturdays and Sundays, for all the games uh, that we televise, uh, pregame, halftime, uh, postgame shows, uh, the what we call the big show on Saturdays, which is our sports center, if you want to call it that, uh, for Big Ten games. And then on Sunday, we have the show Big Ten Basketball and Beyond, in addition to all the game coverage. I'm on uh, Fox Sports uh periodically on their pregame or postgame shows. I'm on this Friday night on a pregame show. Uh, and then uh, there's a program called Inside the Big East on FS1 in which I do a insider segment every week. And then I continue to write uh, regular columns and features 
Uh, we did one today about Caitlin Clark and the collision she had during the court storm. I am not a fan of court storms. I don't know. Do you guys do it at Syracuse? You guys storm at Syracuse when you, if you could beat Carolina, I, would you storm? I, I think they would. I would also <laughs> not be a fan of it because I, I think like I think the 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 old time Syracuse fan still you know considers Syracuse. You know we're Syracuse. You know we're yes. you know one of the, one of these programs. Um, and obviously that that's not still the case. But I think the the modern college basketball fan, especially the student section, would would storm the court. Well, I'm a I'm a believer that, look, I, I even though I'm a journalist and I, I I go I get paid to go to games, I'm still a fan too, and I pay to go to games in a lot of instances, and I'm happy to celebrate any victory of my team at the seat I paid for. I don't need to be on the playing surface in order to celebrate. And it's not I'm right because, I'm right there with you on that. I, I think that's I'm a good not stance. a kid anymore. I just think that the risk to the to the athletes and and participants is too great. I was there in 2000 when Kenyon Martin broke his leg and missed the NCAA tournament. Now that was a game, but that's like, that stuff happens in a game. But what happened, the actual collision, you'd have never known what was going, what the consequences were going to be. And that's why when I saw Caitlin go down after the collision with the fan, like I, you couldn't be sure was, could, could she have blown her ACL? Could she have broken her leg like Kenyon did? Uh, any, like, a concussion might have been a good outcome because she'd only missed a couple of games or so. I mean, that's how that's how dangerous that was. And it's why I don't believe look, they don't they don't storm at Allen and it's it's a fabulous atmosphere. They don't storm at Mackey, it's a fabulous atmosphere. I I haven't been to the dome for a while for a Syracuse game, but when I used to cover Pitt there, it was always tremendous. And it didn't matter what happened after the game going on the floor. What mattered is the fans created part of the uh, atmosphere in which Syracuse or Purdue or Kansas or whomever could get their victory. I'm I'm all on board with what college fans bring to the sport. I don't think you have to be on the floor to do that. I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, but I do. I remember the last. I, I want to say the last. So the last Syracuse won on a buzzer beater on Saturday. The last buzzer beater uh, to beat. I think it was ninth or tenth ranked Duke. Uh, the court was stormed after that, and that was in 2017. So now seven years later, um, I think it would it would only be worse, and 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 the court would be stormed. Thank you so much again, Mike, and and great having you on, Ethan and Jordan. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, happy to do it anytime. Thank you so much again to Mike. Uh, really, just unbelievable Carmelo Anthony stories there. Uh, I, 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 uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to him. Just listening to him talk about what what Carmelo was like uh, in high school, and then you know, translate that in, into what he did at Syracuse. I'm sure it was an amazing ride to to cover. And you think about that Final Four coaching against Roy Williams for for Jim Beheim and finally getting over the mountaintop with with Carmelo doing it. It it did kind of you know change college basketball and and did change things for Syracuse. Uh, to what they are today. And now, you know, Syracuse recruiting Carmelo Anthony's son as part of the 2025 recruiting class, a, a definite priority for Adrian Autry. We'll see if Kai and Anthony uh, uh, comes to, to central New York. I think we talked enough about, uh, about Autry's team uh, guys. We got, we got football schedule news to talk about, and we got women's basketball. We could talk about which, which way do we want to go here? Which, uh, which are you more passionate about Hudson? I'll go to you. 
Oh, which one I'm more passionate about? Yeah, women's which one are you, basketball. Okay, then let's talk women's yeah. basketball. Okay, yeah. what are what, what are your thoughts on this team right now? My thoughts on this team right now is this team is electric. Everything about this team is absolutely electric. And the job that Felicia continues to do, especially after that loss to North Carolina, where they just, it's safe to say they got the doors blown off of them. Both Syracuse teams went down to North Carolina and lost bitterly, but then pick up a win against Boston College, Wake Forest, a huge win over Clemson, and then Florida State as well. Pitt, five-game win streak now for them as they had into Notre Dame, a team that they've beaten before. The stars are kind of aligning, but this Notre Dame game is kind of the the hinge right now. Beating Notre Dame on the road, they beat them in the dome, not comfortably, but they, they, they handled business. But now going on the road, you got to go up against Hannah Hidalgo, who just keeps getting better. She's arguably a top three player in the nation. She continues to get better. And so having to go up against that with, you know, a team that it's they're a great team, but we don't know if they can necessarily get over the hump fully and become like a contending team, which is even though Notre Dame is middle of the pack because they have Hannah Hildago, it makes them a contending team already. So the, it really hinges a lot on this upcoming game and, and games after that. It's a big week. Virginia Tech is obviously a, a big team and same with Louisville, but the Notre Dame game is really where where this not season fully hinges on but it's it's not far off from that yeah i mean if we're talking about the next three games notre dame number 15 virginia tech also ranked in the top 25 same thing with louisville if you win two out of those three games let's say and one of those losses comes on the road then you are a contending team you're already six and one in the conference you've responded to the first time that you really faced adversity when getting the doors blown off of yet north carolina with a five-game winning streak um, and this team is just electric. I mean, they're never out of the game. We talk about, you know, the fight of the men's basketball team, you know, when things start not going their way, especially if it's in the second half, they don't have necessarily the ability to come back. This team's come back from down 18 in two games last week, Clemson and Florida State. So they have shown that no matter what, they are still in the game, partly because DeAsia Fair can just get hot from three and then it's crazy. But if you look at the roster, they are very balanced. Their guards, Elena Rice, George Woolley, DeAsia Fair, all can score at any given moment. Then you go down to the forwards, Batsanai Wilson's been great on defense. Kyra Wood has been a great rebounder and, and put back um, player down low. And then Alyssa Latham is a budding star in the ACC in her own right, being able to play down in the post, but also make threes. So if you look at the team, they're 16-2 and two for a reason. They are so balanced, and because of that, they're going to be in every game, or they're going to have a chance to win every game, no matter if it's home, where they're undefeated, or on the road. I feel like they're they're the uh, they, how do they keep getting away with this? Like that's just that, that, that's what that's what comes to my head. These comebacks, like the one against Clemson, the one against Florida State, um, they're down eighteen in in the third quarter. Like uh, how that's do FLJ how, motivating uh, your team? How do they keep doing it? I love that line you used to describe Alyssa Latham, a budding star. It's like when uh you know as a big golf fan, it's like when you know people are talking. You know they whenever you're talking about the relationship between a golfer and his caddy, if like the caddy has any sort of playing experience, the classic line is always, "Oh, and he's a good player in his own right as well." Um, it's <laughs> it, it's so that just popped into my head. It's it's so funny to 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 hear that used in in a basketball sense. We'll. We'll see how this team does on Thursday. And of course, WAER has full coverage 
on social media and on our website, WAER.org of the women's basketball team. Check us out at WAER sports. And we'll have some, some chats about it on the double overtime after, uh, after the NC state game on Saturday, that go, that show goes until 11 o'clock on Saturday night. If you don't have any other plans and, and want to tune in to WAER switching over to football, Jordan, I know you're excited. The football schedule is coming together. So, so fill us in on, on what dates are locked in right now. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. So they locked in Ohio the other day um, as the opener for next year on um, Saturday, October, no, not October, August 31st. And then, I mean, the best news of all yesterday, they did get two primetime games, but the best news of all is the fourth non-conference game being at UNLV, taking a trip to Las Vegas, baby. Um, so that'll that'll be fun, whoever gets to go on, on that trip. And, and just in a cool experience for the team. I mean, you don't really get to see Syracuse, not to my recollection for a non-conference game has ever really traveled out to the West coast since, you know, in the last five years. So getting that trip is going to be cool. Even though that game's in mid October, it's not in the traditional non-conference area. And then they do have two primetime games. They're playing Stanford for the first time on Friday, September 20th, possible Justin Lampson revenge game. Um, and then also Pittsburgh, they're traveling to Pittsburgh on a Thursday night, which should be an interesting atmosphere because, you know, you have the Thursday night game against Virginia Tech last year, which was a great environment, but Pittsburgh is not technically played on campus. It's at an NFL stadium. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how the crowd is like uh, this year for the Thursday night game. Multiple NFL stadiums too, because playing yeah, at Allegiant Legion Stadium in Vegas. And yeah, the, I, I think the experience of, playing at an NFL stadium too, regardless of the level of competition, which UNLV is a solid team. UNLV, I mean, a couple of years ago, they, they had a massive program turnaround where they were in the sewer a couple of years ago, and now they're a, a pretty solid program. I believe they were in a a pretty decent bowl this year too. So Yeah. Oh, wait. Were, did they? No, that was – I, I thought they played UCLA, but I'm pretty sure that was Boise. That State. was Boise State. Yeah. Well, you know who? Um, you know what? You know Jimmy who, What quarterback transferred to UNLV? Hudson. Oh, oh, that's not Tate Martell. Everybody Matthew Sluka. I'm pretty sure. Matthew Sluka. Really? Everyone, everyone who Holy was saying Matthew legend. Sluka come to Syracuse, and then Syracuse got Kyle McCord. Now wow. Matthew Sluka is going going over to uh, UNLV. Yeah, you know, Kyle, Kyle McCord, Matthew Sluka, you know, say it, say Kyle McCord player. in a boot, in a boot, by the way. Not exactly sure what the deal is there. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know, the entire new the transfers and the guys who enrolled mid year, um, so freshmen or, or transfers threw out t shirts uh at the Miami game on Saturday. I think it was at like the under eight timeout or under twelve timeout in the first half, and Kyle McCord walked out there in a boot. And everyone's like, Oh, what's going on here? Um, uh, you don't care, Jordan? No, I just no, I'm not going to read too much into that in January. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, football guy. From, the, from the videos you're seeing on social media, lots of uh, lots of tough workouts happening right now down at uh, so we like to see. down at the Lally Complex. Mm-hmm. Um, Championships are won in January, as football coaches love to say. Well, the Super Bowl is technically won in February, so well, I would championships. Just, championships are oh, sorry. actually Sa- cha- yeah, one in college January. football national championship is one in January. It is one in January. It is technically it is you one know, in January. You guys know what I meant. You guys know what <laughs> yeah. I meant. Championships are won in December before January when your team is already eliminated and you haven't played. Championships in a bowl. Are, that's good. That's good one. Championships are won in January, which is when no, it's just true. When it's it, factually when the, correct. When the national championship game is. I think that's a perfect <laughs> way to close out this episode of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. Thank you so much to Empire Hearing and Audiology. 
for sponsoring and, and presenting the show. We we appreciate their support as always here on the podcast. A huge week coming up in Syracuse. Any news notes will be here for it. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at Ostrom Avenue Pod. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel, the Ostrom Avenue Podcast YouTube account, and of course, WAER.org for anything you can need about the station and the type of content we're putting out. All right, for Jordan and Hudson, I'm Ethan signing off. We'll see you next week with a lot more to react to on the Hill.